month. We are, the first Sunday of every month, we're doing a series through rejoicing in the Lord. We're calling it the Year of Rejoicing to remind ourselves of all the different parts of the Bible where God calls us and reminds us to rejoice uh, and to delight in Him. Uh, A few weeks ago, or a few months ago, one of these first Sundays, we uh, we did Psalm 37, which talks about delighting in the Lord and that He will give you the desires of your heart. And this, what I'm about to read, Isaiah 58, I think is the expansion on that. Because it talks about delighting in the Lord and riding on the heights of the earth and being fed with the feast of the inheritance of Jacob. But it really expands on what it means to delight in the Lord and to do good uh, and to, and to uh, be given the desires of our heart. So if you would please stand uh, out of respect for the reading of God's word as God teaches us to rejoice today from Isaiah chapter 58. This is God's inerrant word. Let's listen intently together. Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sin. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such a fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loosen, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and to not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and a holy day to the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own way or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you to ride on the heights of the earth and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father 
For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word that speaks directly to us, Lord, but it is always your mercy and your blessing to us because you want something for us that is so much better than what we would sell ourselves out for. So we pray, Lord, you would help us to see that today, that this is an invitation to join into the higher reality of the heavenly realms even now as we here, live here on earth and that we would see the beauty of Jesus and all that he has done for us, Lord, uh, so that we might be grateful as we ought to be and rejoice in that. And we pray this uh, in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. One of my favorite stories is a story about Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Who She came to New York one year and uh, toured the city. One of the uh, reporters that was with her asked her a question. She said, he said, Mother Teresa, what's the biggest difference that you see between Calcutta and New York City? And Mother Teresa said, well, the biggest difference is the poverty. And so the reporter replied to her and said something like, yes, I can only imagine what kind of brutal poverty you must experience in Calcutta. And she said, oh, no, no. I meant the spiritual poverty, the brutal spiritual poverty that I see here in New York City and in the United States. Now, I love, I love that story. This is why I love that story, because it shows us, it shows us the bubble we exist in a bubble, and we exist, uh, in, and we're influenced by things that are all around us, and we're also constantly being influenced by the culture. So sometimes it's really hard for us to see where we're really at, what we truly value. Uh, but that reporter, he kind of pops the bubble for us, and or Mother Teresa did really, because uh, and it shows us that the interviewer he misunderstood here her because his whole mental framework about what consisted of wealth and what consisted of prosperity was so tied in with material things that he just completely missed what she was saying. She thought she was being perfectly clear, but to his mind and his mindset, being so influenced by the culture around us, he totally missed what it was she was saying, that material wealth wasn't really truly wealth, uh, and that we are really in danger of also slipping into these cultural frameworks of what is poverty, what's prosperity, and what wealth is really all about. And the Israelites did this too. They had slipped into, in the time of Isaiah, into this religious rut where they had really reduced worship and their religious life down to a manageable level to a, really to make made it into a to-do list of things to do that to, would then buy God's favor uh, and then they would get their material wealth and prosperity from God. Probably a great harvest or victory over enemies or something like that. But in this passage, really, God is saying to them He wants something better. And that's true for us too. If we have a tendency to slip into these religious ruts or we, down, we downsize and make our, our worship manageable and comfortable and safe, God comes, into, uh, comes to us through this passage and says, there's something even better than what you are wanting for yourselves. In the beginning of this, he says, 
He says to Isaiah, he says to cry out like a trumpet. The trumpet, the shofar of Israel was a, the trumpet that they called out as a warning. And so these are, these are serious things that God's saying. These are heavy things that God is going to say to us about what true worship is and what it really means to delight in the Lord and what the entry point into the joy of the Lord really is. But what's, what's really important and what I want you to remember throughout this whole thing is that this is not a guilt trip. This is not God trying to make anyone feel guilty. This is God instead inviting us into something wonderful. He is inviting us into a higher reality, really to join the kingdom of heaven as a way of life even now. Uh, And he promises through that delight and sustained joy and spiritual power and spiritual protection uh, to share in the reality of heaven even now as people that belong to God's kingdom. And so here's the big idea, big idea of this passage. Uh, what I think the Holy Spirit wants us to know more than anything is that whenever we try to turn worship into a hustle, God invites us to get high by going low because that's what Jesus did for us. Amen? <laughs> Amen. Whenever we try to turn worship into a hustle, God invites us to get high by going low because that is what Jesus did for us. Let's look at that one part at a time first. Whenever we try to turn worship into a hustle. Now, if you read this, the first pass at this, it can be kind of confusing. It was for me because it sounded like they were doing a bunch of good stuff. They were fasting. They were delighting in the Lord. They were humbling themselves. They were bowing their heads. There was sackcloth, ashes. That's all good stuff, right? But... But God ends that little section by saying this is transgression, meaning these are acts of disobedience and sin, and that it is sin, meaning that it's coming from a sinful attitude. Uh, so what is it? How, is, how, are, how can those things possibly be bad? I had, I've, I've been reading, I have to read part of the church planner arsenal is to really be competent uh, in internet promotion and learning how to present the church online and social media and whatnot. And I've been reading tons of books on that. I, and for, I, I had the misfortune of coming across this one website called Mentor Box. Um, and I was shocked by it because I opened the site and they were using like every tired sales technique from the 1990s to try and manipulate me into buying their product. They had the countdown timer that came up as soon as I opened the page telling me I had 35 minutes to take advantage of this special or they'd be all gone. Uh, And then the price was slashed from the regular price of $99, only $69. And it was all presented as like they were doing me a favor. They were like offering me this service because they, you know, wanted to serve me. But what was, real, what was offensive about that? What's offensive about that? It's, ob- it's just a big, obvious hustle, right? They weren't trying to offer me any service. They were just trying to manipulate me to get what they wanted, which was my money. And the service wasn't even all that good. Now, listen again. Let's listen again to what exactly the Israelites are really doing in their worship. Verse 2, it says that their worship was really comfortable. They had, they sought God daily and they delighted to know his ways, but, next line, says, as if they were a nation that did righteousness. See the difference? They're all about knowing about God, 
but they didn't want to actually translate that into doing anything. Let's listen to that twice, Reformed Church. They delighted to know his ways. They delighted in theological precision, but they did not delight to allow those ways to translate into real service in the world. <clears throat> Second thing, they, all their, wor- their worship was, very, was controlled. They put parameters on it. They were enjoying the kind of the, it, it, the, 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 the vibe or the external feeling of self-cleansing that they got from the ritual, from fasting. If you ever fasted for a day, you can really kind of get off on that feeling of like, of self-purity and self-righteousness even. I'm fasting and kind of the, even the, the hunger of it a little bit can produce those kind of feelings of pleasure, really. And they were, setting, they were kind of cordoning off like one day to do that. And, and you know, really what, what the text brings out is that their heart wasn't in it to serve God because really at the end of the day, the fast was just making them hangry and they were attacking each other was making them angry, not bringing them to a state of deep communion and rejoicing of God. So really God is saying, you're courting off this one day to look really holy and righteous in your fasting, but it's not really costing you anything. It's not really bringing you into the kind of sacrifice uh, and self-denial that's going to produce joy. Third thing they're doing, verses 3 and 4, is they had compartmentalized their worship from the rest of their lives. They were all shiny and brand new on Sunday morning, but the rest of the week, they went home and they were oppressing their workers. They had contempt for their fellow man, pointing fingers, uh, and they were, lived lives of deception uh, and speaking wickedness the rest of the week. And that is not worship. That's a big hustle. That's reducing our religious practice down to things that are comfortable, controlled, and compartmentalized so that we can get God to give us what we think we want. Our conceptions of what wealth and prosperity are, whether, you know, for the Israelites, whether it was a, a bumper crop or protection or the winning of a war or uh, a big new house or getting to the right college for the kids or whatever it is it was all look it was all gauged to get what they wanted from God some sort of material thing prestige happiness success their definition of it they had really found a way to fit their religious practice into some empty spaces of their real and busy lives Uh, and here's the scary part scary theology 101 it doesn't seem like they even realize that's what they're doing they're kind of stunned. They're like, God, we're serving you. We're worshiping you. We're fasting. And you're not coming through for us. Uh, they had really drifted into this cultural form of worship or culturally influenced, influenced way of worship and they didn't even know it was happening. So if that's true, if that's true, how do we, how do we know? How can we tell the difference between the hustle and really, and worship. It tells us in verse three, it says the well worship will produce. Uh, God will continually satisfy us, and we'll feel 
like a well-watered garden. In other words, worship, real worship, service that is coming from a place of a heart of gratitude produces grateful hearts. It produces, it restores us. It refreshes us. It doesn't burn us out. You may be physically exhausted, but your heart is singing. Uh, but the hustle creates anxiety, anger. These people, they're mad. They're mad because they're serving, 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 and God is not coming through with what they have asked him to give him, and now they're resentful. They're mad at God for not coming through with what they told him he had to do on his part. And God says to them, listen, don't expect any power, sustained joy in that. Because really your joy will only be as stable uh, as your worldly success. And worldly success is a dicey thing. So, I worry about this one. You know, this one convicts me, really. How many things, how easy it is for us to slide in our own expectations into our religious worship and not even know that it's happening, man. This happens to me all the time. Last year was a year of pruning for me as a, as, as a church planner, as wanting so desperately to be successful in ministry. God was continually just like pruning me and bringing me back to remembering, hey, you already, wa- you already got the prize. You have salvation. And now... You're serving a, a grateful heart to accomplish my ends, and you don't get to determine what those are. You need to be happy here and rejoicing in this, not in the expectations that I put on God. So this is something that we all, I think we all struggle with this, especially in the culture that we live in. The culture that we live in is constantly pressing in on us ideals for what success looks like, what we have to have, and it's so easy for us to just subtly transmute the idea of God into the power that's going to get those things for us so that we can be happy. And that leads to burnout and despair. But listen, notice what he's saying. God is called, we talked the other day, God calls you out. God speaks directly to us about our sin, but it's always for our benefit in an act of mercy. And then he surrounds us in love in the midst of it. So this is not God like, you know, condemning us. This is God not cutting us down. This is his invitation into something that is so much better than we even want for ourselves. That's the second part. Whenever we try to hustle God, God invites us to get high by going low. Listen, the best the best stories, all the best fantasy stories, science fiction stories, they're all about what captivates us is they invite us into a world uh, that is above and beyond our present reality. Star Wars does that. Invites us into this massive universe that's so exciting. Uh, The stories of Middle Earth invite us into this world of creatures and, 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 and magic and power and things that are above us. The Harry Potter series, same thing, invites us into this higher dimensional reality or a world that is bigger and, and more expansive than our own. I remember when I was first saved, after I got over the initial shock of the fact that God had forgiven me and that my salvation had been won by Christ, the first time that like got through my head because God had opened my ears and given me a new heart. 
after, you know, I had, was coming to grips with the an astonishing beauty of that, it also struck me like a couple months later, wait a minute, this also means that there is this higher dimensional world that I live in. There are angels, there are demons, there's the heavenly realms, there's God uh, and the Holy Spirit flowing in and through us with power. It's better than the force. It's better than magic. And we have been tapped into that as part of our reality. So listen, I want you, first, before, I want to tell you the promises that God is making in this chapter to us. This is what God is saying to us. I want you to imagine, imagine a world in which you had supernatural protection from calamity. Verse 8 is Exodus language. Verse 8 says that the, your righteousness will go before you in the glory of the Lord as your rear guard. The Israelites knew that their, righteous, their righteousness was the Lord. The Lord was their righteousness. And so that's a picture of God going before us in power with the heavenly hosts, with the armies of angels, and, be, and going behind us in a rear guard. Uh, a picture of him surrounding us with his divine protection. Now imagine a world where you had supernatural power in prayer and in meditation, where God would answer prayer in amazing ways. You would pray for stuff and be shocked when you saw it happen. Stuff, of course, aligned with God's will and according to his will, things truly good and beautiful, but praying for people and seeing them come to to salvation. Seeing people, God moving people across the country to come into salvation. Seeing God like work together all these exponent parts into this crazy symphony of togetherness and unity over the course of a couple of days that would bring that brings life to people and you're just like I can't even believe that just happened imagine a world where you felt the constant sense of the presence of God guiding you continually a world where there was rapid healing as a budding of a plant from spiritual sickness to health or light to darkness gloom to noonday a world where we enjoyed a sustained supernatural joy where even in the midst of the scorched and fallen earth we would have this sense of all of our desires being met because all of our desires have been truly refocused into the beauty of Christ and the heavenly realms that we now belong to and the spirit power and sustenance that we get from that. And imagine a world that was just overflowing with a sense of well-being uh, overflowing with you became a wellspring overflowing with the spirit just blessing the people that God had put you in touch with imagine a world like that that's what this passage is saying that's what all those promises are talking about this is really oh, more than anything this is God inviting us into our citizenship into the kingdom of heaven to begin living as the people who we are, as adopted sons and daughters of God, being put in touch already with the powers of the age to come and to begin to enjoy those blessings. You know, of course, it all starts with repenting and believing on the Lord Jesus and being given a new heart and being given salvation and being having our minds blown by the reality that God had forgiven our sins in Christ and that we were right with him. It begins with that, but 
in this passage, God says that there's, there's this entry point into this joy. And here's what he says. This is what he says, okay? You ready for this part? Here we go. Now again, these are not things to do. This is not another to-do list that God gives us to manipulate him by. The big difference is these are responses that we have to the salvation that we've received. The first thing he says, the first thing, and he says it twice, is to we are, as God's people, to be actively engaged in dismantling the machines of oppression in our culture. He says it twice in one passage, backed up Bible-wide, that when we see systemic racism, when we see institutional racism in the church, in the culture, we have an obligation to dismantle those things, to educate ourselves to what that really is, to what the struggles that people of color go through, and then to come in and to actively dismantle uh, to dismantle those strongholds of oppression. Now, of course, this, is, this also has a big spiritual aspect to it, right? The big strongholds are the strongholds of sin that the devil has over us. And so a big part of this is, of course, our obligation to evangelize and to bring the message of Jesus to people. But it's also mercy ministry, which is not the gospel, but it's an obligation or an something that flows out of the gospel that Christ has freed us from our oppression and he's called us to serve him by serving others and dismantling those those machines of oppression that we see. The second thing he says is that he calls us to care for the homeless poor. To care for the homeless poor. He says that right there. Now, the cultural clue, in that day and age, that would include people who had been displaced by war and refugees, uh, but also the people that, for all sorts of unforeseen reasons, had fallen into poverty and not been able to get out of homelessness. Food, clothing, and shelter, for sure. But listen, there's a qualifier on this that says, it says we are to, it says, give yourself to give of yourself. I mean, we see that. I saw, I saw an ad from an, an, another local uh, church and they were talking about they had given, they were giving 10% of all their tithings to this World Relief Organization, which is great. I mean, that's not a, not a bad thing. But that's where our minds tend to go. We're going to give some money, but that's not what this talking about. It says to give of ourselves, to personally be present and to involve ourselves in the lives of the homeless poor. How, would, how might we do that here in San Diego? How might we do that? And the third thing, third thing it says to love God by making Him and the worship of Him the center of our lives. This is what I worry about us, folks. This is what I worry about us, really. I worry about that we are so indoctrinated in the cultural narratives of success and wealth that we don't really even know that those things are at the center of our lives. Uh, that's, that's what's central to us. And then we come along and try to add 
religious practice and worship in the blank spaces of our already busy lives. And what does that tell us? That tells us that really what we're hoping for, our salvation, is dependent upon the cultural narrative of wealth, not on what God is saying will produce wealth and joy and satisfaction in us. And so when he talks about the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, yes, he's talking about making this hour and a half the center of our week. Because this is where we come and God refreshes us and restores us uh, and, 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 and sets us up for a week of beauty and light and worship. But it doesn't stop just here. This is super important. It carries out to where we refocus our lives. We reorganize or we, do, we think and meditate and pray about how might I reorganize my life to where worship and God and service is at the center as an act of devotion. And then as we seek God's kingdom first and its righteousness, what does God promise to do? To give us all these things that he knows we need. So, listen, what is this? What is he saying here? He's making all these crazy promises, all this, this spiritual life that we, I think we all like fantasize about or wish that, you know, was true of us. But then the, our cultural uh, influence comes in and we turn it into a to-do list. So this is what I need to do, this, 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 and this. And then God will do this, 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 and this for me. And we, we determine our own sense of what we need to be blessed, what our sense of wealth is. And God is saying, no, I got something better for you than that. It doesn't look, at first it kind of looks scary. It looks like, oh my gosh, that's going to destroy my life. Oh my gosh, I don't have time to do that. How would I even begin to do something like that? And God says, chill. And let's just think about how we might reorder our lives so that service as an act of devotion is central. And see what God does with that. And so really what he's doing is inviting us into the kingdom of heaven. These are the ethics of the kingdom. Emptying ourselves, dying to self, so the power of God flows through us. And along with that comes sustained joy and blessing and spiritual power and protection. God is inviting us into a higher reality, a better world than any science fiction, fantasy, or novel that we've ever read and so that's a good reason to do it, right? Because there's, 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 there's solid blessings that God has promised to attach to reordering our lives focused on worship rather than cultural wealth or prestige. But there's an even better reason for it. There's a better reason that we might think about doing that, and that is that Jesus did this same thing for us. This is what Jesus has done for us. And it's not just the best reason why. Really, it's the reason, uh, the fact that Jesus has already done this for us is the reason that it even makes these things possible to be acts of worship and devotion as opposed to acts of self-preservation. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, one of our old, the old theologians of the Reformation, John Calvin, talked about something called the wonderful exchange. And this is what he, this is what he said about it. He said, this is the wonderful exchange which, out of his measureless benevolence, he means his immense goodness towards us, he has made with us, his measureless benevolence that he has made with us, that becoming son of man with us, he, Jesus, has made us sons of God with him. That by his descent to earth, 
He has prepared an ascent to heaven for us. By taking on our mortality, He has conferred His immortality upon us. That by accepting our weakness, He has strengthened us by His power. That receiving our poverty unto Himself, He has transferred His wealth to us. That taking the weight of our iniquity upon Himself, which oppressed us, He has clothed us with His righteousness. You got all that. That's all scriptural. He's pulling that from 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though He was rich, for your sake He became poor, so that by His poverty you might become rich. Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who had power over death, that is the devil, the oppressor of mankind, and deliver those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He rescued us from slavery and gave us his riches and his kingdom and his inheritance. And Second Corinthians 6, that we, talking about how the world sees us versus the reality, it says we are treated as impostors by the world, yet are true as unknown and yet well known by God. People don't think we know God. God knows we know God. As dying, and yet behold, we live in eternal life. As punished, yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. And Paul just flipped it around on us. He didn't have nothing. But he knew what real wealth was. He understood what real prosperity was. God knew him. God had brought him into the family through the blood of Jesus. And that is eternal riches and wealth beyond anything the world or sin can give us. Amen? So look, what's that all saying? It's saying God, that Jesus did all this for us spiritually. He has rescued us from the oppression of sin and death through the cross. And since we can't repay him, and we can't, well, you can't give anything to God, what he calls us to do is as an act of worship to then go out into the world and do that same thing for other people, to bring them into the saving knowledge of Christ, even if you get ridiculed, <sighs> to bring people uh, to, to work to alleviate the suffering of the homeless poor, to go into communities of refugees from war-torn areas and share with them the gospel and the hope of life. That's how we worship him. And listen, God will not be a debtor to his people. When you engage in that, you will quickly find uh, that as much as you try to give God and serve God and worship him, he continually gives you more back. That's what he's trying to do with us. Get us into that cycle, into that way of blessing. And so, look, I know we're crazy busy, part of our culture. I know there's crazy pressures on us. I know rent is super high. (laughs) I know it's hard. I get that. And we really have responsibilities, spiritual responsibilities to our families and to take care of our our children uh, and to be self-sustaining and to give, have money to give to the poor, right? But what we can do is we can think 
about reordering our lives. What am I buying into that's making me unavailable for God that's really more about meeting cultural standards or impressing my neighbors than it is about serving Christ? Maybe nothing. Maybe you're, max, maybe you're serving crazy style. But it's something to think about. Uh, is the Lord's Day the center point and highlight of our week? Do we see that as super important? Do we come every week to be reassured and restored by God? Uh, and then on top of that, we can make it real easy for you. <laughs> we have a ladle ministry that anybody can come and serve at. I want to challenge everybody to think about giving two hours, two hours a week, 2% of your time every week to service as an act of devotion and worship to Christ. Um, maybe you're doing that in other areas, and that's great. But if not, maybe ladle ministry is something that you can do. We may have some other opportunities coming up that are just as stunning and wonderful and beautiful where we can engage in it and serve God's people and serve the poor and serve refugees and watch as God does amazing things. And although we may be physically exhausted, our spirits and our hearts will be singing because God is being glorified through us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you make this true of us. We pray that you would make us a church that sees opportunities for evangelism not as burdensome, uh, not as uh, offensive, but that when we are invited into opportunities to share the faith or share uh, things about our church, that we would see that and be excited about it as opportunities to serve you, Lord. And we pray that you would make us a church that has a deep, desire to serve and care for the homeless poor because your word says we should do that. Uh, it's pretty clear. <laughs> and that you promise, you have these crazy promises attached to that. That you will make us to ride on the heights of the earth, Lord. Whatever that means, we want that. We want that, Lord. So we know, Lord, we're stubborn. Uh, we know we're short-sighted. We know we're afraid. We know we're afflicted, but we know your spirit is power. And so we pray that you would empower us, Lord, to move in this direction. And we trust that you will come through on your promises, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.